Welcome to Free For All, an episode-by-episode podcast about one of the most endlessly fascinating television shows ever made, The Prisoner. Each week we'll be taking an in-depth look at the 17 episodes of The Prisoner. I'm Chris Bainbridge, Senior Lecturer in Broadcast and Creative Media, and I'm also a Prisoner devotee. And I'm Kai Ross, a film writer, restaurateur, and Chris's mate, which is how I got this gig. Once upon a time, there was a 1960s spy series. <laughs> Written the, by Archibald Schwartz. Yes, which very slowly, very methodically, started to turn into something completely different. <laughs> um, and yeah, 9.2 million people watched this episode. It's crazy, isn't Can it? Can you imagine... I just imagining the sort of the kids kind of rolling their sort of dinky toy mini mokes on the floor <laughs> and play with their prisoner helicopters watching this, just going... Mummy, <laughs> mummy, what's happening? Um, it's the most extraordinary episode. It is, uh, and I've got to be honest, I didn't, I didn't really like it that much when I was a kid. Mm. Um, there was, I don't, I don't know what it was. It was just not one of my favourites. No, I was absolutely the same. It, it was just one that I, I honestly didn't understand. No, and I thought back then, some of them I used to watch Many Happy Returns mm. and Hammer into Anvil. I'd sort of just watched on a constant loop. This I maybe saw a couple of times, I remember it, but it was never one I'd sort of actively want to mm. see again. But time has conferred upon it something, or age. My jaw was dropped to the floor mm. watching this. I thought, this is... And just the, again, you just kind of thinking, imagine what, watching this for the first time. What on earth is yeah. going on? I have, I'm lost. I don't know what is going on. Kind of, I'm so intrigued. I'm, I'm, I'm unbelievably intrigued by what's going on. I felt challenged. It was just an extraordinary episode. Even though I'd see, I knew exactly what was happening, mm. I'd seen it all 25 years ago. Yeah, absolutely blew me away. Well, this is, uh, unbelievably, uh, production order number six. Yeah, I don't understand this. I always remember, because <laughs> the, the whole thing with Liam McKern's beard when he comes back for Fallout, because of the gap in between episodes, mm. I remember in the French book reading about this, yeah. that there was a, such a gap. But he kind of, it almost makes no sense now. Yeah. They went from this to the schizoid man. Yes. Can you imagine yes. That? Okay, right. Now, <laughs> next episode, tomorrow, on Monday, we start with uh, this with Johnny Caper. Rogers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how the heck, on earth, how did you bounce from this? And... Uh, with it being the production number number six, what were they thinking when they were making this? That, well, that uh, at one point did somebody come and say, "Ah, Pat, darling, we need more. Yeah. You can't just end with this." I, I think, obviously, as you know, you produce television not necessarily in the order mm. that it's going to be uh, broadcast on television. But I think because this is episode six of a perceived seven, with the final episode being Fallout, maybe McGowan wanted to shoot as much of his vision earlier. Yes. Rather than later. And then before, Luke... before they started rest control from his, uh, his yeah. grip. And then obviously then having to shoot another five or six to get up to 13. And then the four was this, shot at the was end. Was this not designed possibly to be the end of the first se- uh, season, series? It's too short a season though, isn't it, for British television? Especially for Lou Grade, who wants, you know, tw- in the 20s to syndicate. Well, yeah, but I mean, at, at, at this point in the production, was it not still uh, being designed to be a, a, at least a two-season show? I think... The complications with, with everything arose a little bit later, but I'm at not, this stage... I'm not entirely sure, but if, I mean, I can see why he would want to get the more important episodes done first. Mm. You know, if that's his vision, he's got all these people, he's got Port Marion, he's got, you know all these things at his disposal. Maybe he wanted to get these done earlier. And, and of course, there's availability as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as you know, uh, Liam McCombe was doing Volpone in, uh, on stage at the Garrick and things like that. So maybe it was just about who was available, what they could shoot, mm. basically. I don't think we have to read anything into those first six, seven episodes shot as being his order or anything. I think yeah, it's yeah. just... You know, availability and various other things. Practical concerns. But yeah, no, I wouldn't read... I, I don't think we should read too much into it. But of course, this is broadcast order 16. Yes. Out of 17. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's those episodes from the end. You know, what do you want? Number one, I'll take you. And then it's walking oh. down the corridor to all you need is love. is like a year apart. Yeah, I mean, I, I quite like Degree Absolute. Yes. As a title. Which is a play on words, isn't it? Decree, absolutely, yes. If you've ever been divorced. Uh, Let's not bring this up, Chris. I'm sorry, man. I I know it's hard. I don't mind talking about my divorce. 
Uh, imagine the surprise I had when that letter came through saying, you know, I had my decree absolute. I was like, yes, prisoner reference. <laughs> Every cloud. Every cloud. <laughs> it wasn't in the Albertus variant font, but, you know, kind of everything. Well, well at least it wasn't Comic Sans. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. It's a, I mean, degree absolute is sort of a, a good title. I quite like the, the pun on it, in a way, that it, it's about a separation and between two people, essentially. And, and this, apart from the inclusion of um, Angelo, who gets a kind of big credit on this one. Yes, it's, it's his first title credit, proper, isn't it? Yeah, it's like, ooh. Swanick doesn't, which is a bit because no. he's he's the other guy with dialogue, but he's still relegated to the uh, the, the end. But it, it's it's a it's a two hander, an unbelievably Beckettian, Pinteresque yes, two hander. Yes, yes, it is. So th- there's something apt about the fact that it's a no, so, it's, you not say, so much a separation as as, as, as you, you say a game pin- of two of, between two people. You say Pinto. I mean, like, uh, echoes of the dumb waiter. Yeah. In this as well, with the two men in this, you know, isolated place. He ha- one has to kill the other, essentially. Yeah, and Sleuth. Mm. Uh, do you remember that? The play, Two People. Two-hander. You, you're not even sure which, who, which, who's in charge and who's the subordinate and, uh, until the end, it all twists and turns, yeah. in a little way that, the, that this does. Um, so it was very much kind of in the air. And, of course, we're talking about plays. We've really got to talk about um, brand. Mm. Um, yes. This, I mean, which I guess, having I didn't really know about this till I started researching for the podcast. But that was McGowan's other great passion, and not just before the Prisoner, but after. I think I think there was there were tentative deals to try and make a movie, a, a movie or yeah. a TV show uh, with ITC. Yeah, and I think it was just I think apart from the Prisoner, the other thing that Patrick McGowan wanted to do was was brand, and it's slightly I'm sure it probably haunted him that he never quite managed to to do it. I mean, his daughter, Catherine, said that if ever there was a part specially made for yeah. Patrick McGowan, it was Brand. Yeah. And, you know, the lone wolf, the isolationist, the person whose high morals are, you know, set him aside as a bit of an outcast. You know, people are not living up to his expectations. Yes. It sounds an awful lot like Patrick McGowan during the making of... Yeah. Prisoner. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, the brand was also the... It was kind of what launched him into the stratosphere in terms of his, his reputation as an actor. He'd done bits and bobs and things. He'd done a bit of telly. A bit of telly. A bit of telly. He was in the... You showed me that um, photo of him in the Dam Busters. Yeah, I had no idea part. he no, was in the Dam Busters. But this, this, at the time, I think, was a bit like uh, Jez Butterworth's Jerusalem. Hmm. Do you remember when that was out? And I, I didn't know who Mark Rylance was. <laughs> but suddenly... Everyone was just going, this is like seeing CGI for the first time. This, yeah. There's this guy, Mark Rylance, and it's him. And it's, I can't, I've, it's, it's the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. And it's basically this one performance by an actor that just transformed him yeah. into this legend. And it was a little bit like that with Brand yeah. because he was – and you see it, you can – well, it's actually on YouTube. The BBC actually filmed it. It's a sort of um, – it's not so much a film version – it's quite. It's very yeah, it's, stagey. Yeah, it's a um, film of the play, isn't it? The, yeah, and it's a black and white. It's a black and white film of a very monochromatic. Yeah, very, it's just <laughs> literally black, white, and some dry mist. Yeah, but McGowan is just up to twelve on yeah. this with All a very uh, Richard Burton esque performance, isn't incredibly it? Richard Burton esque performance, and it, it, I, I think it just blew people away. Yeah, and then from that, his reputation just went through the roof. Yeah, but but knowing the character brand. I think says a lot about McGowan as a person. Yes, as well, especially these moral values. His in, in, immense moral standards as yes, well. Yes, that uh, he would he would look down on people who who didn't meet them. Which of course came from his upbringing as a Roman Catholic, mm. and of course Roman Catholic school, and of course that's shown here in the episode almost like an autobiography. There is autobiographical elements within this episode. Yes. There are some fictionalised versions or some more heroic versions. <laughs> but essentially it follows McGowan's path rather than Prisoner's path yeah. to a certain extent. Well, we should, we should just mention uh, uh, this is written and directed by Patrick McGowan. There's, yes. there's no, no yes. one else is involved in this one. But a bit like this, the famous story of Fallout, how he actually came to finally write it. In this instance, this was a, apparently a 36-hour writing binge <laughs> yeah. with uh, the occasional cheese sandwich. Um, and you can kind of tell and and I don't don't mean it in a bad way you can no no normal person would write this script in fact again you alluded to before Archibald Schwartz 
There's that lovely story. Who was it? Mickey O'Toole. Yeah, the props guy. Yeah, he said, why, why, why do you think of the script? And I said, like, oh, this is... Who's Archibald Schwartz? Well, you don't want to hire this guy. This Mickey is basically is. lots of people shouting numbers at each other. Yeah. What the hell's this? <laughs> and it's McGowan's favourite episode. Yeah. Believe it or not. Yes. Considering he wrote it. But apparently he, he handed in this draft, and I think it was like one draft. There was hardly a yeah. word changed. Yeah. You know, in 36 hours, it's pretty... Pretty damn good, really. Pretty, yeah, I, I've I've spent thirty six hours writing absolutely nothing before. Often, this is essentially a, an expression. He's on a flow. Yeah, he's on that level that as like the the hippie kind of thing. He's on this vibration, <laughs> man, of where he's just these ideas are coming to him, and he's just channeling them. Well, he, he's like a conduit for these ideas and just putting them down on paper. I tell you what, it did remind me of the whole primal scream thing. Not the band. No, well, shout out to my favourite band there, Bobby Gillespie. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, but no, Arthur Yanov. Lenin was obviously yes. uh, a big exponent of this. I, I assumed it was of the time, but it was actually 1970. So yeah, this predates he, it. Yeah, because Lenin wrote the um, Plastic Ono Band. Yes. Around that time after the, the um, Primal Scream sessions. The songs like Mother. Yeah, oh, yeah. But yeah. Uh, that's exactly what, what you were saying before about the mm. way he wrote this and what it was. It was like, it was like a, just an explosion of in, mm. his internal thoughts. But that's kind of what Primal Scream theory was you, yeah. you you had to go back to your regress to childhood and kind of relive it again in order to attain some sort of closure um and this again this is very autobiographical the school the boxing mm. um the fencing yes yes the fencing mm. and then, yeah and you could tell by his poise he's a pretty good uh, yeah. pretty good fencer. most actors i mean it, it, during that time when you were trained as an actor fencing was a very good activity to do as an actor yes because you learn balance you learn poise you learn movement you know, it's um, it's a skill that you would maybe need in in some performance as well, yeah. sword fighting and things like that. But fencing and and stagecraft and learning to be an actor go hand in hand, really, or at least did. You know, I think Rada did. You know, and all these famous drama schools would have had fencing classes, yeah, and maybe boxing classes. But you don't want to hurt the face, darling. No, no, not the face, <laughs> not the face, darling. Yeah, now you get uh, trained in Instagram. <laughs> Uh, manipulation, yes. So it must have been quite a cathartic experience for him. Now, I've watched quite a few interpretations and I've read quite a few interpretations and I think it's wise that we don't follow in their footsteps. Because we're just doing what other people have, you know, interpreted it as. I think the way we should look at this episode is from an autobiographical perspective. Very well. Let's look at McGowan and how this relates to him in this episode. Well, there's a, famous, there's a famous piece of advice to writers, isn't there? Yeah, Write uh, about what you know. Yes. And in this episode, McGowan is writing about himself. I think he was kind of just wrestling and... And once he suddenly started to, sort of to empty his brain onto the page, yeah. I just don't think there was any way of stopping it. I suspect he was probably just doodling and drawing things on a page for the first yeah. three hours. Rover. And for the next yeah, just doing nice, man, nice bits of shade. Man chased by ball. <laughs> little few little tic-tac-toes <laughs> in the corner. And then after, and then 33 hours of just manic kind of, oh, he'd, he'd sort of, he'd managed to regress into himself and just, just wrote it all down, yeah, fever, yeah. fever, like a, again, fever dreams and overused thing, but it, it had the feel of that. Well, it's an interesting point as well. The script in terms of the character names. Because as you know, if you're writing a screenplay and you're writing a stage play, there's a different format mm. involved in how you indent and you know create margins and stuff like that. But for stage plays, for the character names, he went with P, P for prisoner, Leo and Angelo. Mm. So you essentially have Pat, Leo and Angelo on the script. Not Butler, not yeah. Two, not P, a prisoner, mm. but Pat, Leo and Angelo. Which is very interesting. Yeah. It's Angelo. You're going to have to type out Angelo. You know, we don't have things like Final Draft uh, in 1967. <laughs> and, you know, he would have had to write that out. And so yeah. he wrote their names, which is quite interesting, I think, because it gives it more of a, a reality, a more of a real world reality mm. that maybe they're not playing the parts in this. Maybe they are just going in this as actors. Yes. And I wonder how much deviance there is from the script. Maybe there is some improvisation in this. Uh, I don't think there was much. Unless we had the script, we wouldn't be able to tell anyway, would we? It'd be interesting to see it would, the, really the would. shooting script, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's. I mean, it is worth mentioning that Mark Steen thought this was nonsense. Yes. And I, this was, again, if you think, well, this is only the episode six, I think this would have been the, th- the script that made Mark Steen think, I might need to 
get out of this. Well, yeah. imagine if it was later. You can imagine he's done Do Not Forsake Me. He's like, oh, I like this. Yeah. <laughs> Girl with death. Oh, yeah. Bit of fun. I might stick around. <laughs> Once upon a time. Right, I'm done. I think, I think special branch is a better <laughs> idea. than Yes. So, uh, but you're right. And Max Stein was, was around at the time. But yeah, you can, you can imagine those conversations. Yeah. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> what is this garbage? Where's the spy element? Yeah. Pat, I, I, just, I don't want to bring this up. He's not trying to... He hasn't made any escape attempts in this one. Pat, He's just in a room. Yes. So we've got a struggle for supremacy from the cradle to the grave. The seven ages of man, as yes. Leo McKenzie number two says. Infancy, schoolboy, teenager, young man, middle age, old age, dotage and death. Yes. In the embryo room. Yes. Which, of course, has that significance. But that's been covered so many yes, times. Yes. But I, I would like to talk about the beginning, though. Strange scene uh, yeah. in the square. Um, With John Casabon. Yes. Well, I, I kind of work out what, what that was all about, because his reaction is odd. Mm. Stop it. Don't, don't, yeah. don't want to see you. Like, what are you doing? It's this weird... I mean, I was thinking exactly the same thing. Mm. What the hell are you talking about, Patrick? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Stop shouting random words at me. Yeah, it was just an odd scene. What do you yeah. make of that? It doesn't need to be there, does it? No. It was just almost like we need a bit of Port Merion in here. Just to sort of, sort of... And what's also odd is, is uh, McKern's performance at the beginning. Is Why is he in such a bad temper? Well, I suppose maybe because he's got Rover sat in the chair, which is uh, <laughs> which that must be fun trying to get the, that balloon in there. I love that. I'd have actually put cheeky Rover in the chair. <laughs> <laughs> Disappointed, he can't ever be number two, as the badge would burst him. <laughs> <laughs> and here is your promotion. <laughs> pop. Yeah, pop. pop. Indeed. There we yeah. are. It does get this strange that all along Rovers has been the one in charge mm. in, a, in a weird way. That would have been amazing if he'd have been number one. It's a great shot, though, of when McKern enters the fray, sort of rising up from the floor. It's a high-angled shot. It's mm. brilliant. It would have been quite a treat as well, I think, for viewers when he appears because yeah. he was made such an impact, obviously, in the second episodes. Oh, it's, but you know he's going to pick because you hear his voice over. Oh yeah, yeah, but just that sort of just it was a it was a proper yeah. good entrance. It would have been better I think maybe a Robert Rietti voiceover without number 2 appearing. Yeah, it kind of I suppose they thought well this is scene 2, it's not yeah. like ruining a, no. a spoiler, but it's uh, it's ah oh, good, it's McKern. Yeah. Good, 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 good. <laughs> this is going to be fun. <laughs> but yeah, and then the strange What's revealed in his dialogue? Again, you assume it's number one that he's shouting at. It's mm. not. It's, it could be none of them. Even D Darren Nesbitt, whenever they're on the red phone, Colin Gordon, mm. it's never actually It's implied, but it's never stated. He never says, ah, number one. What I quite like is where he asks the butler to remove yes, yes. breakfast and he ignores him. Does he ignore him or does he not hear him? I, I just, he's just not going fast enough. Well, I like to think that the butler's starting to rebel. I like to think that the butler is actually starting to to feel number six's attitude, and it's he's having an influence on, yeah. on the little people, as in the the common people, and he's starting to rebel. He's starting, you know, not to jump to orders. Yeah, or maybe the butler thinks that Rover is in charge. Maybe it's, it's the one in the chair. Yeah. He, he takes orders from not not you. He's like comes in. He's like you know because neither of them speak, which mm. would make it very awkward. Yes, you know, and he just basically brings him, and Rover just looks at it, wobbles a bit, and, <laughs> and that's it, really. Then he gets straw. Yes. Then why has he brought Rover uh, a lovely English breakfast? Yeah. My but, theory makes no sense. I like to think that they're old, they're old workmates, and it's that embarrassing thing where you you're in work, you just pop in to see somebody, and you're talking, and then a manager comes in, so right, I'll see you later. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, they're just having a chin wag. Yeah, <laughs> I, see, I see him break. Hi oh, guys, what's going on? Oh, nothing, <laughs> no. nothing. <laughs> Hey, guys, hey, who was up for paintballing this weekend? <laughs> yeah, I'm busy. Oh, well, no, 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 we're, we're going to Keith's. Another stage connection here is that the, the view screen opens... The, like a cinema. Like a cinema or a theatre. Yes, so, yes. So you have tabs that come in, drop in vertically mm. from a flybar, or sometimes they will just close, as in left to right will close. And they, this is like the cinema style. Yeah. But it leads from the theatre style as well, doesn't it? Yes, I was almost, it seems to be lacking organ music. Well, look at it symbolically as the opening of the performance, the opening of the play. Yeah. That's how I see it. Yes. Because that's when we see number six on the screen. 
and there's that lovely shot of where McKern stands next to the projection. <laughs> And he's framing actually, him in the same room. Exactly. Yeah, I thought that was a lovely touch because mm. he was. You know, he, the dimensions are correct as well. Mm. Sometimes when you do that, he's too big, but he's actually. Exa- he looks like he's in the same room. Yes, but he's not. That and this one of your favourite prisoner esque references, the Truman Show. Yes, there's a fantastic scene where Ed Harris is kind of walking. It's, it's exactly the same yeah. way, set against the screen of Truman. He's kind of stroking his hair. Yeah, and yeah. Well, Peter Weir has actually been quoted saying that this is, you know, there's elements of the Truman Show that are a love letter to the prisoner. Yeah, well, I think that, that that's one pretty, that's a scene, I think, yeah. that, that strips straight from the prisoner straight into the Truman Show. But it yeah. works re- really well because there's a strange kind of, kind of an odd sort of protectiveness mm-hmm. about McKern, the way he, he is with him. And it's just almost like a... It works almost like an, he's like an angel. Mm. He's, he's there, but Patrick McGowan can't see him. It reminds me a bit of like always yeah. Spielberg yes. film where he's there but he can't see him and it's, it's that that scene holds for a good sort of minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's just very very effective. Why do you care? Yes, you'll never know. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> he says it twice, doesn't he? He yes. says it. Why do you care? And then he phones him. He phones him and says, "Why do you care?" Interestingly, as you probably know, McKern struggled during this episode. Oh yeah. I mean, there was he had the burnout from uh, Volpone. Yeah, yeah. You know, he was putting it with Patrick McGowan's yeah, requirements was, in this episode. He was, um, and you, you can tell, mm. that's not like stage sweat. And I think I think they, they were genuinely worried he was having a heart attack. Yeah, yeah. And there, there are moments, you know, the bit where, he, where he's sort of rest, fighting with him, resting yeah. on the ground. He actually looks like he's going going to die. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was physical, mental, everything. I think it, was a, it wrecked him, this. Well, apparently McGoon went up to see him in his dressing room and he was curled up in a fetal position. Yeah, go away. <laughs> I've called two doctors. Yes. <laughs> Leave me alone, you... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which I think there was a... I read something about... What's the uh, the interview, the Canadian one, where they're all trying to chain-smoke each other to death? What's <laughs> yes. the, what's the yeah, guy's which name? One you mean? I don't know. But he said... He talks about McCurn and that, doesn't he? Yeah. Uh, about what happened. And he was sort of like, yes, you, you, you nearly had a nervous breakdown. Oh, very interesting. Not... not I'm, I'm I, To this day, I feel dreadful about what I did to him. I was like, hmm, very interesting. I nearly killed him. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, a, I, I think, to be fair to McGowan, I think, you know, if he's burnt out, and apparently he had depression as well. He was fighting with depression yes, at yes. certain times. Um, a lot of these things come into a head. And then to go from that situation into this episode, thinking, oh, I had a jolly old time on uh, China's <laughs> Big Ben. I'm going to love this. But no, this is visceral. This is intense. This is pushing you as an actor at a time when perhaps he shouldn't have been pushing himself. No. Did this, ba- this, was, did this bounce from China's Big Ben to this? Yeah, so, straight, so he, he was probably yeah. Don't go yet, Leo. Yeah. Well, can we can we can we, can we borrow you for another one? Yeah. Patrick's writing at the moment. We haven't seen him for thirty-four yes. hours. All we can hear is screaming. <laughs> well, Lewis Griefer claimed that McGowan was the one-man band doing everything himself and not relying on the team around him. Mm. Which in itself, I mean, you can see that from an artistic vision point of view, if you want a job doing, yes. do it yourself. I mean, Kubrick was like that to a certain extent. He had a very small team around him of people who were as passionate and dedicated as he was. I think with McGowan, you know, he had Tomblin, he had Champan and a few others who saw his vision and would work 24 hours a day with him yeah. to get this done. But of course, he's taken on so much. And this must be getting to him by this point. It has to be. Yes. That he is struggling. Yeah, this is this is this is, I mean, again, one of the most fascinating. Well, one of the reasons it's such a fascinating thing to watch because you are actually watching two men mm. on the brink of of potential of, nervous breakdown, of, of, of sanity. Yeah, they're right at the edge of of what they're capable of. And yeah, I think this episode probably nearly did them both in. I think Stanislavski would have a field day. Oh yeah, he this. he would just show this to all his students. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. I mean, that's. There was a um, uh, little shout out to another fantastic podcast, Writers on Film, ah, uh, yes. which is wonderful. Uh, but he was interviewing a guy t- talking all about the method. Is it John Bleasdale? John Bleasdale, yeah. fantastic. He was writing, he was talking about the the method. He, some mm. guy had written a book about the method and what it was, what it wasn't. Yeah, and all these different types of acting teachers, Stanislavski. Yeah, but they all have very different styles. I think, yeah, I think people like Lee Strasberg. His thing was to sort of get to internalize yourself and bring yourself to the part. Yeah. Whereas Stella Adler, I think, her thing was to go the other way completely and invent a character. Mm. And don't you know, it's not about sort of 
turning on, bringing yourself to the part. Whereas this, this absolutely is. This is very much McGowan just emptying his brain mm. and trying, almost like the catharsis of it. He said, doesn't he, I think one of the Rick Davey quotes, um, it's good to get a few things off your chest, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, you said about the, like, the method. There was, I, I think it was at Stella Adler's school where one of the exercises the actors had to do was to pretend to be chickens. So they would, first of all, move around the room and, and do their arms like, you know, like a, a chicken. Yeah. And uh, if a bomb is dropped, how do the chickens react? And all the students basically just go mad and panic, except one student, Marlon Brando. But apparently Brando just carried on being a chicken. And then when he was questioned, basically said, well, the chicken doesn't know where the bomb is. Yeah. And that was like, you've got it. You know, you've got, you've got the understanding of being a chicken. Yeah. There was, uh, there was a line in that in that podcast. Uh, apparently, Shirley MacLaine, I think, had said uh, taking Marlon Brando to acting school is like taking a tiger to jungle school. <laughs> yes. just, just no point. Yeah. So the stage is set. The curtains are open. The house lights are dimmed as we descend into this hell-like <laughs> redress of the same set. Yes, yes. Which is interesting because... It's dressed exactly like a studio stage. So if you've ever been in a, a drama class or um, in some theatres, not the traditional proscenium arch theatre where you have a stage raised and then seating. Yeah. You have the bleachers or your seats around all four sides. And then there are a, a curtain rail that goes around the, the centre bit that you can pull across and you can do almost like thrust stage and stuff like that. So it's almost like that. You've got the black drapes, cloths, all around, creating this very abstract environment. And a lot of performers do that today. The traditional way of putting flats up, building a set. You've seen the mousetrap and things like that. You know, they get the furniture in. But there's a lot of plays that don't rely on sets. They just rely on props or certain pieces of furniture. And this episode does this. It has the rocking horse. It has the seesaw. Is that to encourage uh, improv? It's not so much, I don't know if it's, it's more of a, because it's an abstract set, the audience just goes with it. Mm. And as you know, he's got the boater on, he's talking to the headmaster, he goes through that door, the door signifies moving from one space to another. The audience makes the leap. You don't need a stage set, you don't need a schoolroom, headmaster's office set with books and papers. The audience go with it. The abstract sets work brilliantly, and a lot of plays do use them. You know, um, have you heard of John Gobber's Bouncers? Oh, yes, yes, the I have, four of course, yeah. actors and shakers. They, they use a lot of the performances that I've seen of, of Bouncers just use the abstract set. They just rely on their own physical performance. Yeah. That's it, you know. It's not like Edward Gordon Craig, the famous set designer, who would, you know, put the set above the person, <laughs> above the actor. It's basically black studio floor act perform, mm. and you've just got these little props because the focus is on those two actors. Yes. And I believe that's what they're doing here. From a, somebody who's worked in theatre, I see that. I see this as a stage performance. I can, you can transfer this to the stage easily. Mm. Yes. I don't know anybody would want to tackle it. I think they did. Oh. I think, uh, I think 1990, I think mm. somebody staged this episode. Interesting. As a, as a, as a, as a play. Uh, maybe at the Edinburgh Fringe or something like that. But it has been done. Yeah. Because, again, if you, if you were that way inclined, if you were sort of a director of stage plays or you were interested in theatre and you watched this, mm. you'd think, well, this, this would translate Perfect. str- perfectly yeah, yeah. to the yeah. stage. You'd have to just put a little bit of context at the beginning and the end, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. But I think that's when those curtains open. That is your context. That's the beginning of the performance. The characters are introduced, the scene is set, mm. and there they go. The hecklers have been removed. But there's some nice, yeah, some nice little touches though. I, I quite like the flamenco flourish as uh, as he claps for the door. Yes, and um, th- there's obviously the the line, "I know your voice." So this obviously doesn't put this episode straight after. No, this I had I, I had a whole theory about my what the running order should be, mm. and this that line throws it out. Yeah, I've been here before. Yeah, uh, through <laughs> Kybosh, the whole thing. Yeah. But there's another lovely line, isn't it? It says, I, I require approval. Yes. Given that we're, we're supposed to be really over-analyzing this, <laughs> I require approval. It's a strange thing. And also, if you get him, he'll be better. 
This is this kind of. In- I'm a good man. Yeah, but, but he's better. Him. Yeah, yeah. It's almost. I'm. I'm going to sacrifice myself. If you want this guy, he's he's for what though? Mm. For what? Because they brought that's him just back. Going they, on the spy trope, though, isn't it? That is just the. Yeah. You know, we want him as a number two. We want him in the village as, you know, as a leader rather than as a, a follower. Yeah, I think another another number twos. I think it was Mary Morris, wasn't it? Mm. Was was making similar points that, that he's not there to be broken. He's here to be sort of yeah to, he's, persuaded he, persuaded to run the place. Yeah, you know, he's um, to accept. Yes, accept. But in order to do that, he first must accept, which yeah. he never does. But most people do accept the situation that they're presented with. Yes, and that's a line from the Truman Show, isn't it? Yeah, we do. We just live in our bubbles, and he doesn't want to live in this bubble. And the whole point of the whole conceit of this is to make him appreciate and adapt and accept the situation mm. and make the best of it or, you know, take control of it. But he doesn't want to because he rebels at every turn. Yeah. And we see that in the episode. He rebels at every authority figure that's presented to him. Yeah, because the, re- the, the reality that he's in is not his. No. He probably doesn't mind being in a bubble as so long as it's his bubble, but this mm-hmm. none of this is, is his. There's a lovely scene. The supervisor lets the staff go. He goes, release all subsidiary personnel. Yeah. And the, the supervisor gives them the nod. And then you just see like everybody get off their computers things and they just walk out. And there's one woman. She doesn't look at camera, but she's got this smile on her face. Like, like I've, been, I've been on telly. No, I, I just read that as, I've got off work early. <laughs> because, because what he says then, timesheets as normal, double night time. Now, that's important. Timesheets as normal, double night time. So this is obviously the night shift, but he's releasing them and they're still going to get paid. Timesheets as normal. Well, right? in fairness, that's, that's good on it. But it breaks down that illusion of the village. We talked about this in Funeral. The mechanics of the, the village are being shown here. And we do, I think all of that, that takes away the, the, the mythos of the prisoner, but also it works from a bureaucracy point of view. Yeah. When we're going, you know hates bureaucracy. Yeah. There's a bureaucracy element. Your timesheets, you've got to do your timesheets. There is another theatrical element here. One of the unions for stage workers is Bechtu. And Bechtu only came into existence in the early 90s. So what Bechtu does, uh, one of their rules is that if you work in theatre and you work on a get-out, so what a get-out is, is at the end of the show, usually probably on a Saturday night, audience has gone, you know, everything's opened up, the, the lighting comes down, the sound is de-rigged and the set is struck and put into lorries and they go off to their next venue. And basically they have a touring crew usually and you'll have a theatre crew and the theatre crew usually are members of Bechtu. So if they work for, let's say, 15 minutes, they'll still get paid for two hours. Yeah. So there's, it might have changed since my time in, in theatre, but... There's, the unions are there to protect and to make sure that they're paid the double night time or in addition time for that out of social hour work. Yeah. Now in the village, that shouldn't really exist this double night time thing because it's it's quite nice that it does. Yeah, it it's does. A bit, isn't it? It's a bit of sort of um, an added layer of reality. In the sixties, you would have things like the Variety Artists Federation, and yeah. eventually they kind of evolve into what Bechtu is is today. But I quite like that. It's almost like. A closed set, you know, when uh, like in television, you know, when there's maybe nudity or something, it's, it's a closed set. Let's get everybody out and just have the director and the script editor and various people, yeah, because they're going to get the kit off. And it's in, in a way, it's almost like they're, they're actually getting rid of the whole village. Yeah, I mean, if they're if they're going, there's nobody left to supervise. Yeah, because nobody else actually matters. The only one he does is is number six. It's one on one yeah. and the supervisor, because how does he know? I suppose he could just come in when the clock. Finishes, couldn't he? But yeah, well, he's got a week off. Yes, this last week. Well, he's got he's got his DJing to do, hasn't he? <laughs> he's probably thinking, "Well, that's fantastic because yeah. um, join me for my top hits of because <laughs> Jenny and Dave wanted me to do their wedding in uh, in Marbella. <laughs> well, that's that's brilliant. Do that. I'll, I'll be back here in a week. There's something that um, he said: check profundity, and I don't know even know because obviously that doesn't make any sense. Is this when he's kind of? Uh, Drawing the curtains and sort of... Uh, is this, did he say that to the supervisor? Yeah. Check the profundity. Yeah. Which means great depth or insight we, or knowledge. Yeah. So... Could that have been like... Maybe that, <laughs> that could have been like a note from the Magoon wrote to himself and accidentally wrote it into the script. Maybe. Or maybe it's, it's the checking the information is correct about number six's past before they make, make a start. 
Yes. Maybe. I don't know. I sp- yes. It's, it's just, just an odd line of dialogue, really. Yeah. Which isn't really explained or explored. No, that's, actually, that works well as a as a as a because number two all the way through this mm. has to, has to know all about number six's past. Yeah. So check profundity. It's almost like make sure I've got all the right lines. Yeah. Make sure I know what's. Suppose. Yeah. And just in, in literally two words, that's yeah. all. Get rid of that. And of course, we get all the children's songs, don't we? Humpty Dumpty, Jack and Jill, copyright free. Yeah. Pop goes the weasel. <laughs> Coming soon on KTEL Records, Leo McKern sings your favourite children's <laughs> yes. theme tunes. In the most sinister voice on television, <laughs> Leo McKern will lull your, your children <laughs> into a nightmarish coma of terror. We talked about Matt Berry, that McKern and Berry are very similar in their yeah, performances. Yeah, yeah. Matt Berry is probably the I mean, he did uh, Jack and Ori uh, oh, did episode, he? yeah which is wonderful. It's called Alphonse. It is not okay to do that in typical <laughs> Matt Berry fashion. Yeah. But there aren't, you're right, there's not many people or many actors today who are recognisable by yeah. their voices like we had in this era. Yeah. Arthur Lowe, Leo McKern, Bernard Cribbins. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ray, Mr Ben, Ray. Oh, um, I, uh, uh, Ray Brooks. Ray Brooks. Yeah. The Dog and Duck down the high street. Remember well, that Oliver Postgate. Oliver Postgate. Yeah. If you could, if you could turn his vo- a voice into a pill that would make you better, <laughs> yeah. it would be Oliver Postgate's voice. It's a shame, really, isn't it? But do you know Oliver Postgate had a sort of, mm. had a sort of, it was kind of strict voice in a, in a way. Mm. It was lovely, warm and, and cloth furry, cat warm and all that stuff. But at the same time, he had a quite a, an admonishing tone sometimes yeah, yeah. that worked. Yeah, it made you sort of sit up and want to please him. But they all had this authority, mm. but an avuncular authority. Yes, which McKern does. But I think he needs that because he's playing these throughout our lives. Our first authority figure is our parents. Mm. And then our next authority figure is our teachers. And then our next authority is maybe like our coaches or sports coaches or people like that. And our next one is our boss at our job. And it follows that path, doesn't it? It follows these authority figures who set out their own separate guidelines of rules. School, you must conform. You have to wear a uniform, uniform. Mm. The, The boss, these are the rules. You work nine till five. This, you have your lunch at this time. You cannot do this. You cannot do that. Yeah. These rules are set out all our lives by these authority figures. And McKern easily slips into every single one of those roles in this episode. Yeah. And the first one being the, the parent tucking in yeah. the kids singing him lullaby songs. Lovely. It was, uh, Quite in, uh, there was a lot of that kind of child. Uh, you, you hear child, nursery rhymes and children's songs, and a sort of um, a, almost like an Edwardian children's element in mm. a lot of stuff at this time. I think around about this time, Jonathan Miller did his famous Alice, Alice in Wonderland, Wonderland. Yeah. and that everyone was into Alice in Wonderland. Lewis Carroll generally, mm. John Lennon was. Um, Sid Barrett. So, yeah, the whole Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Yes, thing. yes. It's all very sort of kind of lullabyish with a very sinister. Well, I mean, 1966, 67, where you've got this, you know, the summer of love, the psychedelia element. These musicians are writing songs about lullabies and writing songs about childhood rather than I love you, you love me, she loves you, all that kind of stuff. It's, you know, Piper Gates at Dawn. You've got a song called... Uh, what, Bike at the end? Bike, Flaming, you but know, ba- bike. Lying on an Eider Down. Yeah, bi- hey actually, b- Bike really reminded me of this this episode mm. because it's got a charming da-da-da-da-da-da-da and then at the end it's just sense of this horrible, yeah. demented... Noise of ra- machines. Yeah, cl- yeah sort of a clockwork uh, toy. I think it was, I think, late 60s. Mm was probably the first time that artists realised just how creepy Victorian yeah. the toys of their but childhood I, were. I Am the Walrus yeah. is essentially a child song because the lyrics are like, as by Lennon's own omission, they're like an Edward Lear mm. poem. I am he as you are me and we're all together. It's almost like this episode in terms of the way the rhythm of the dialogue works. Sid Barrett was a master of this, of taking these childhood elements and changing them into modern pop songs. Yeah. And I think today, I mean, people like, I say today, you know, people like Lady Gaga utilise very basic childish melodies, mm. you know, which people latch onto. Yeah, yeah. You know, Noel Gallagher did this as well. It's, it's utilising these very simple melodies that repeat and are very catchy, and the audience responds. And that's, that, you know, you look at all the nursery rhymes, they are constructed in that way. Yeah, yeah. They're simplistic. And they're easy to remember, and they're catchy. But they're, they're also 
there's something it's quite sinister. Mm, especially, you've said this before, when you take a childish song or childish uh, iconography and put it into a adult or different setting, it creates something sinister. Yeah, there's a there's a uh, there's, there's something discordant about that that is always a little bit sinister. And in this scene, when he starts off singing Humpty Dumpty, and by the end of it, he's, he's kind of shouting. It. Yeah. Well, do you remember Sapphire and Steel? Oh, yes. Do you remember the episode that was set in a, an apartment blocks and there was the, the baby had grown into a full-bodied man? I, I had nightmares. Do you remember the one with the, the people who had no face? Yeah, the Victorian. Oh, guy, yeah. I, 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 that's one of the scariest things I've ever seen. They're I'm all like, terrifying. Oh. The, the one on the railway station is my favourite because that is just uh, amazingly atmospheric. Yeah. And, of course, there's only really three actors in that. David McCallum, Joanna Lumley... Uh, and then you've got the the ghost hunter who comes to the the railway station, and then the ghosts. Yeah. But it all relies on very minimal, basic sets, and it relies on the tension and the atmosphere. Something we lost today. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. Because audiences probably wouldn't appreciate it or understand it or put up with it. You know, they need those cuts quicker, quicker to keep attention. They need fast paced. I know, know, I know. It's it's, it's over and gone, I think. I was doing an assessment with some students and uh, with a colleague who works in a a different area and she sent me through a script. It was clunky. It was just derivative. It was just, you know... But it was an actual... It was an actual script for a TV programme. And I was like, how... I'd love to see how they actually interpreted this on the screen. Yeah. Because it was just very, very wooden and... But a lot of people are now getting away with that kind of writing because... I think, and you probably appreciate this, is that the appreciation has gone or the attainment we've talked about before. Yeah. You know, you're going to write a script, I'll just throw the third draft in. (laughs) This is not not how people talk. No, I know. But I've always thought you've got to know the characters. If you know who the character is and you know know, their interrelationship, that should write itself in to a certain extent. Yeah. Because you know how that other person is going to react to, to dialogue. Yeah. Well, I mean, in this episode, it's it's quite interesting that Patrick McGowan isn't really playing number six mm. and, until there's a quite a recognisable moment. It's when he starts shaving, yeah. ironically, that he start, he starts kind of he, he clicks back into his character because for yeah. the, the first half he's 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 literally growing. It's a bit like Benjamin Button in reverse. Is that right? He's you know, yeah, he's he, growing up, isn't he? Yeah, he's not challenging number two's authority. To properly, you know, with his ice cream, mm. he's just literally he's, that. That was nice. That's yeah. something that you could really overdo, pretend to be, and make it really quite. Because he doesn't speak, creepy. does he? No. Until you get to that point, really, when he's in the school office, in the headmaster's office. Mm. I quite like the wheelchair as the pram, yeah, <laughs> or buggy, as they say in America. I quite like the lawnmower as the uh, as the bus, or the, he's driving a lawnmower around as well. Yeah. But of course, he's he's trying to, as we say now, retcon. Mm. He's trying to retcon the prisoner's psyche. He's trying to retcon elements of his past to find out why he's so rebellious. Yes, prisoner origins. Prisoner origins. Let's go back, rewrite his history, so his present will then be more submissive. Yeah, yeah. And willing to cooperate, which is a brilliant idea. Yeah, yeah. But I think you're right. Yeah, we get. It's only when he gets to the school that he starts to challenge, isn't it? Yes. And he wears the boater like the they wear at Eton. Yes. yes. Now. So during World War Two, McGowan was sent to live down in uh, round about Leicester, Loughborough. Yes, and from he, from where Sheffield. From Sheffield, and he attended uh, Radcliffe College with Ian Bannon. Oh, did he? Yeah, which makes Braveheart even nicer because that would have been lovely for them. Did they do? A they scene were together. No, they no. weren't. No, they didn't do a scene together. But they were in the same film, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. But the fact that they were in the same film and they went to school together at the same time. Oh, okay. I think McGoon was there a little bit early, but they would have been in the same age. So they would have been probably, they would have known each other. Ian Bannon would have made a good number two. Oh, in, a, he? in a sort of the Anton Rogers affable number two. Yeah. He's actually a really good pal. I liked Ian Bannon. Oh, he's great. He was in Doomwatch as well, wasn't he? I did not like that film. No. I think he was weird in that film as well. well that was a film of a TV show, wasn't it? Yeah, Doomwatch. odd as hell film. Mm. It's on uh, Talking Pictures. It's very prescient, though. Yes, in yes, of, in terms of water pollution and whatnot. Mm. He was also in The Offence with uh, Connery, which is one of the most extraordinarily bleak films. And probably Connery's... I've never seen Connery act like that. Yeah. 
But, of course, Bannon in it is wonderful. Oh, great, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, he also attended St. Vincent's School and De La Salle College, both in Sheffield, Roman Catholic schools. But interestingly enough, De La Salle was a Roman Catholic school that was used as a barrage balloon unit headquarters <laughs> in World War Two, which I think is fantastic. But, yeah, both Roman Catholic institutions, which leads on to that problem that we have in that it's established that number six's birthday is 1928. Yes, and we see a scene where he's in the RAF doing a bombing run. Mm, yeah. And it must be World War II because then he's captured. Yeah. And number two becomes a German officer. If you translate it, it's like, you're 19, why do you think you, it's right to drop bombs and things like that? So he wouldn't have been 19 at the time. Mm. Even in 1945, he would have been 17. Yes. And too young to have fought in World War Two. But the fact that they've established the prisoner... No, number six, his birthday is 1928. I don't think the audience really would have questioned it, to be honest with you. No, does, the, World War II in, in their universe could have happened later or mm. gone on longer. We don't know, do we? No, no. Maybe this is a result of World War II going on longer than it should. Maybe the bomb wasn't dropped on Nagasaki, Hiroshima. Maybe it was taken to the village and stored in, <laughs> and that's, you know, it goes into shattered visage, doesn't it? But uh, who knows? But it's their universe. They can do what the hell they like with exactly. it. Exactly. And who are we to judge? Yeah. There was, I, there, there was a nice scene in, when he's in a school and uh, he gets sentenced for a caning mm. for not telling, but which you don't sort of see. You see him assume the position. But Angelo Muscat does the caning. Yeah. I thought it was quite nice that... Uh, one of those authority figures who gets somebody else to do his dirty work. Well, that reminded me of if. Yes. You know, when the, the senior boys do the caning, don't they? Not the headmaster. No, yeah, the prefects. Yeah. Yes, he takes six of the best as yes, well. Yes, naturally. Lovely. Naturally. Yeah. Yes. Little tie in. Um, it's quite interesting the whole sort of just having counting up to five and not, not, not letting him process the number six. Mm. The kind of it's refusal to accept, though, isn't it? It's refusal to accept his number. Yeah, but they're yeah, they're, it's they're doing that to him mm. as, in a way that's almost like making him. So I don't know where the fuck I'm going with this. But, um, I've always seen that as if he says six, yeah, and he's conforming with their, you know, what they want, then he's giving in, and, yeah. and he refuses to accept his identity as six, which is why he doesn't say it. That's how I've always seen it. But at the beginning, when he's when he, he's basically getting him set up, mm. and it's almost like, and then he sort of no, stop, stop, stop. That's enough. That's enough. That's enough. Where he they're just getting him to say one, two, three, four, five, mm. five, five. So that he, they're almost they're almost taking that six identity off him. Yeah. And then later on, when he's being interrogated, and he can't actually, he's almost trying to say it, but he can't. He just looks confused. Yeah. And it's like the, they're almost trying to. Get him to to sort of work through and acknowledge his identity as yeah. six. So it's almost like a trick. Yeah. We then move on to I love the 1960s hairdryer that doubles <laughs> as some kind of uh, some kind of brainwashing. Uh, <laughs> I think that's a, a, a pro, that's Mickey O'Toole, isn't it? Saying what can we get that looks futuristic? Ah, oh, this uh, hairdryer. Nick, that, that they always look so dangerous. They did, didn't they? I mean, I, I wouldn't put my head in one of those no. for all the money in the world. They looked—they were just lined up. Yeah, it's an incredibly sort of sixties-looking artifact. But the thing is, it also works as well because you, you're taking something that's quite mundane and day-to-day -day and making it sinister. He keeps repeating the fact that he's very good at mathematics. Mm. What, what do you make of that? I think this alludes to the autobiographical element in mm. that he worked as a bank clerk, didn't he, when he left school? Yes. As well as a chicken farmer. <laughs> a chicken, a chicken, <laughs> which brilliant. Which he decided not to mention. I can't imagine why. That would have been more up. fun. What a brilliant job. <laughs> and uh, a truck driver. Yes, apparently so. Which Maybe is, that was where he got hell drivers. Ex so. Yeah, exactly. I can, hey, look, he's very convincing when he's yeah. uh, reversing that into a tight space. Well then, <laughs> but then he, part. But then he went to work as a stage manager, didn't he, for uh, the Sheffield Repertory yes. Theatre. And then became an actor. He, he made that transition, him. didn't he? Yes. From uh, stage manager to actor. Funny enough, when Lewis Griefer said he was a one-man band, mm. number two says this, doesn't he, in the episode? Yes, and... Yeah, the one-man band, boy. Yeah, yeah. He also calls him, he says, you're a, you're a lone wolf. Yeah, and which, a likely lad. Yeah, I didn't know this, mm. but apparently lone wolf was the original uh, title for Danger Man. Oh. So that could have been a little in, bit of in-jokery there. And that would, brand as well. 
Yes, that would have been an incredibly yeah. <laughs> in, yeah. in, yeah. in joke because nobody would have even known. Yeah. A little nod to myself here. Yes. I'll laugh. But yes, yes, you're on one one bound, boy. And then he stabs the poor guy. Oh, with, with his fencing? Yeah. yeah. I wasn't sure what, what happened there because he looks desperately apologetic, though, doesn't he? Yeah. Poor thing. And then he's, he's got to spend the rest of the episode in a sling or not. Or can, they keep forgetting to put it on him, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> I love the fact he's got a buggy. He's got a little, like, tractor. Yeah. In so apparently in, when he, he shot the episode Paper Chase for Danger Man, mm. he, he'd requested of Ralph Smart that the this you know like a go-kart buggy would be put in there because that and that's at the end of that episode yeah. and it it almost makes a appearance here doesn't it he gets on the subtractor <laughs> thing and he's zooming around you can tell he's loving it yes it wouldn't have had the same effect if he came down the runway at the beginning of every episode <laughs> though, would it <laughs> just take 10 minutes like <laughs> it'd be like that scene from Lawrence of Arabia wouldn't it <laughs> <laughs> he's then recruited by an agent yeah or is it a theatrical agent Oh, I like this. Go on. Because the word has two minutes, doesn't it? Yes, yes. You, you, you know, that you get the whole get well, the tap yes. on the shoulder at Cambridge, don't you? Yes, yes. Yeah, Oliver, yeah, you've got the tap. Yes. Oh. Can, can you speak Russian? <laughs> Do you have dubious moral flexibility? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah, the agent, um, agent and theatrical agent, there's a double meaning there. He's arrested for speeding, isn't he? Yes, yeah. Clearly not on a tractor. Um, <laughs> was, that, was that autobiographical? But when you factor in the autobiographical nature of everything else, you yeah. know, well, why would he make this bit up? But he's in jail for six days. There's yes. a lovely semiotic there, though, isn't there, about that kitchen and that living space behind bars? <laughs> yes. Unsubtle. It, it, kind of unsubtle, yes. It's the first time you actually see bars in the entire series, Yes, isn't it, it is, yeah. All, all the way through, it's, the irony has been that it's a beautiful holiday camp, mm. not an actual prison, but finally he's actually in a prison. But Which that, is domesticity. It's the home. Yeah, yeah. There's a line, I think, that he comes out with. after. I think after he's sort of becoming more of himself, mm. when he actually says, too many people know too much, mm. that I think is almost key. Mm. I think that's kind of part of his his rant about the fact that we're, we're evolving too quickly and mm. that technology is, is getting too, you know, we're not questioning it, mm. we're not uh, putting it into check. Too many people know too much. That, that kind of stuck with me, that line. And I, I agree with you. I think that's a brilliant reading of it. Um, but, of course, for your home audience, they'll take that as the spy trope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But from Baguin's perspective, yeah, I think that's exactly what he's saying. Yeah, yeah. But there's another line that follows on from that where he says, in my mind, you're smart. I remember the first time we saw, the, the in my mind, the mm. documentary. I thought, I, I, I would use, that's a great name. That's a great name for this. Yeah. Because that, that I always remember the way, the, the way he says it. It's almost like he's actually battling for his mind. Yeah. He can feel that he's actually going a little bit, in my mind, it's, he's... But I think we've got to separate this episode a little bit. I think there's so much autobiography. We've got to see, maybe see this character in this episode as McGowan, rather than number six. Yes. It's that this is a personal, personal response, a, a, almost like cathartic. Yes, yeah, I think that's exactly what this is. I yeah. think it's... it's this isn't, this isn't even about number six. I think that's probably the final draft mm. uh, before he handed it in would have been him sort of cr- just correcting it a little bit yeah, to sort yeah, of yeah. reminding himself, actually, this is somebody else. No, I think I, I totally go with that reading of it. I think, I think, I think we're just inventing things. I think that, McGowan probably agree. Yeah. Everything I, I, we needed is there. I don't think we need anything else. No. There's another, the RAF scene I wanted to talk about because I, 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 this is a little bit of a leap, but... You can look at this not from a World War II perspective, but you could look at this from a theatrical perspective. Mm. If you're a stage manager or a DSM, a deputy stage manager, it's almost like McGowan in his experience is there. He's up in the gods. Yeah. He's getting a cue. He says, standing by. Yeah. And then he initiates the cue, which is pushing the button. And there's a lovely parallel between working backstage and that scene in the aircraft. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, that works. Even the terminology. Simply the fact that this episode is such a, I don't, I don't mean it's in a bad way, stagey theatrical experience, that's, that's a fine theory. But also it could be a nod to the war films that McGowan himself has been in. Because yes. he was in the Dam Busters. Uh, he did the ITV Play of the Week, Sergeant Musgrave's Dance. That, they were the only two I could really find. Yeah. There is another question here. Is McGowan rewriting his own history a little bit? Because that's the conceit. Adding a touch of uh, romantic uh, yeah. heroism. Because even though we went to Radcliffe College, I couldn't find anything that they were 
like Eton or Harrow where they would wear those boaters or dress. No, so but it's shorthand, I think. It is shorthand. It's a visual shorthand for the audience to understand he's a schoolboy. Yeah. He's, he ran them wearing a blazer. It's the best iconography, isn't it? Either a, bla- either a little cap or a boater. Yeah. And it works internationally as a, as a schoolboy. He was a boxer, though, mm. which is... Which is, it kind of makes sense. You know, sometimes in the fight scenes, mm. or just the way he kind of, his gait. Uh, I remember O'Toole talking about Lawrence and somebody, had, and how did he attack the role? And somebody described the way he he stood as a middleweight boxer mm. with his head down, with his eyes up. And, and that informed the way he played it. Yeah, and, and as he, he runs, he, you can see that. Yeah, you can see the way, just the way he stands and stuff, that he, he has that sort of, the way his arms move sometimes. Mm. You kind of think, he looks like a boxer. And of course... Turns out he was, hmm. which again makes it into the script. Again, it's autobiographical, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. There's a, a lovely moment in this, which I've missed before, and I don't know why or how I'd miss this, but there's uh, the switch between the music, because we hear that organ sound yeah, yeah, yeah. throughout, <laughs> and then it's revealed that the Angelo is actually, actually playing, playing it yeah, yeah. diegetically rather than a piece of non-diegetic soundtrack. Mm. It's actually happening in-world. Yeah. I, I think that's a lovely little breakdown between the world of fiction and the world of reality. Because the whole episode is, as we say today, very meta. Yes. And of course, with the, the autobiographical elements, it, it creates this performative element. Yeah. A performance that there's all these little jokes, all these little... Like I was saying about the uh, standing by and all the cues and things like that and the, the way that this is presented with the, with the stage set, with the studio, it's almost like a, a love letter to the theatre. Yeah. And McGowan's love of theatre, of performance. There's a lovely little bit of business with Angelo Muscat when he, I think Liam McKern's been after the boxing match mm. where he starts kind of flapping the, the, uh, the sheet to yeah. kind of uh, <laughs> fanning him a little bit, yeah. which uh, I think apparently he made up. <laughs> Which is but a lovely saying, touch. You know, the, the, there's a lot of uh, opportunity in this episode for improv, mm. for the actors to actually just, yeah, do a little bit more. And I think McGoon would have, would have been in, in for that. I think. Yes. I think he would have loved that. I'm still, twenty five years later, I'm still not hundred percent sure how he dies. How, Is, how, isn't it in the drink? Well, that's what he says and follows. Yeah. But he questions it. Was it the wine? Was it the drink? Or yeah. something like that. Um, it doesn't matter. But I'm just not 100% sure how he actually just... How does he die? Maybe that's why he smashes the glass. Yeah. But I do like... I like the fact that he, when he smashes the glass mm. and the, 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 the music fades in. Because yeah. it suggests that he actually... He, he's built up an affection for number two. He's, he's not happy that he's yeah, died. another human being has died. Yeah, and he's kind of... I think the, the glass smashing is a reflection of... Is, is, is kind of based on the supervisor's callous... Kind of, he doesn't even care. Mm. No. He's kind of... We'll need the body for evidence. Mm. Like, the, like it's like it's what, a, like what evidence. It's, yeah. <laughs> Does the village have its own police force? Because we have to. Somebody has to die. Because if it is the seven ages of man or seven stages of man, death is the is the final outcome. It is, and the only release from the village. And it's seven seven ages of man. Seven days. This 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 takes place over a week. There's mm-hmm. an awful lot of. Imagine it's sort of right five o'clock. We're finished. Yeah. Dinner. Yeah. I quite, quite like to see the other. What were they doing in their off hours? I don't know. Crosswords? Yeah. I'd love to know what they were doing. Exactly. Yeah. Right. It's a lot of time to fill. <laughs> Number two saying, I'm thinking of doing chili con carne tonight. <laughs> Good. <laughs> the butler's shaking his head. Oh, you're vegetarian. <laughs> uh, just a salad for him. <laughs> yeah, where, where were they sleeping? I didn't see a bed. Scores. I'm just going to jump in and say I'm, I'm giving this a six. Yeah, I'm. I kind of. I can, how can I not? I, I think the first time I watched it, probably no. Now I understand it. Now I've had the benefit of, of living life to a certain degree. Yeah. I now understand what it's about. Yes. As a kid, maybe I just thought it was a bit botched. I'd read that it was kind of written in a hurry, and I thought maybe well, it's just it doesn't land with me. It's just it's just too silly, and it's too. It's, it's basically come off the rails of its own internal logic. Again, yeah, watching it now, not just staggering, but you have to also imagine what this must have been like to watch this for the first time mm. on, on a, in a mainstream channel, prime time slot. This must have just been brain-explodingly yeah. uh, novel. And I think, I also suspect people who just didn't get this would not have even bothered with the next episode. This is, this is when the, the diehards would have stayed on. 
And I think it makes you appreciate what a talent McGowan was, not yes. only as an actor, but as a director, as a producer, as a writer. He really was the one-man band. Yeah. So join us next time. It'll be a two-parter. Yes. There's a lot to... lot to discuss. We've got... Uh, Special uh, guests. Yes, who'll be helping us... Make sense. Make sense of one of the most extraordinary things that ever happened to television. Yeah. Fallout. Free For All podcast was presented by Kai Ross and Chris Bainbridge. The theme tune was by Gordon Milton, and special thanks to Jemima Duncar for the artwork. Please see you. You can find us on Twitter at Free For All Pod or on Facebook at Podcast Free For All.